In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Whenever somebody moves away, you know how this is, right? You stay in touch for a bit. Um, usually the way that looks in my context is through text messaging. You'll send a message every now and then, keeping in touch with someone. Um, and there's usually lots to share, the newness of their new place and what they've left and what's going on. But I've noticed more often than not, over the course of time, the frequency and fervency of what I share in these text messages recedes, it declines. Because there's something about not being in the person's presence anymore that seems to make my correspondence with them suffer to a degree. And so what ends up happening is the text messages usually begin with something like, hey, what's up? We haven't talked in a while. What's going on? And then it's hard to relay experiences without people knowing what you're going through. So unless you feel like writing them five pages, which they probably may or may not read and you may or may not have time or desire to write, what you usually do is you update them with a list of things that are happening and an update. It's it's just like this is what's happened, and then some time goes on, and then you got to do the the update once again. And and after a while, maybe you can relate to me. Um, that feels burdensome after a while. It's almost just like yeah, yeah, here's what's going on, and it gets shorter and shorter and shorter until finally sometimes you're like, we're doing good. How are you doing? Because <laughs> you just it's not that you don't care about them, but it's the loss of intimate connection that makes the correspondence feel like an a labor of update. And I fear that a lot of Christians pray like this. We don't pray in the presence of God or we don't dwell much in it. And so our prayer life gradually devolves slowly so you don't notice it into text message updates. So you will, maybe you've experienced this. I know I absolutely have experienced this. You begin to spew out a bunch of, uh, yeah, it's just a big info dump to God. Like, God, here's what's going on. This is what's happening in the world. Here are the people that are suffering. Here are my needs. And it's just like, it's like just this big like update list to God. And then you find that you ran out of things to say. And you look at the clock and can't believe you've only been praying for three minutes. And then you say, well, amen. <laughs> Have, has anybody been there before or are, or uh, I, I don't want to go into my whole history, but, <laughs> but I am absolutely familiar with that method of prayer until I went to Jesus's school of prayer. And that's where I want to take you tonight because he talks about prayer. Um, but perhaps you, to some degree, relate to some of these things. Like, you know you should pray, but you don't know exactly how. So you kind of figure this out on your own. You find that simply talking with God works, but over time, the simply talking kind of feels like self-talk and sometimes feels one-sided. You know that um, if you're honest, for years, your prayer life actually hasn't grown. It's exactly the same as it was when you first started praying or were first taught to pray. You frequently find yourself recycling worn out and tiresome phrases and requests. And you're like, I feel like I'm just saying like, God, please provide for this person or please heal. Like you just kind of like, ah, it's, it's this draining aspect. Um, and then it often feels more like duty than delight. 
Like, I know I should pray, and I get some sort of like, I know I'm with Jesus, but when you're really honest with yourself, the minute you say, dear Lord, you're eyeing the final amen. You're like, I'm going to get through this and say amen. And then in the back of your mind is because I want to eat or I want to work on my homework or need to. Uh, I want to watch whatever this is. Like there's something else that you know is on the verge of happening and that's on your mind. When prayer is like this, it is tedious. It is frustrating. It is one-sided. And it is very discouraging. And like me, you can ask, maybe I just don't have what others have. You know, I mean, I, I can tell Nacelle has it, but I don't have it. I can tell Chase has it and Michael has it, but I don't have it. My wife seems to have it, but I don't have it. I'm not a monk. I'm not a nun. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a pastor. Obviously, I'm speaking about a general <laughs> stance here. <laughs> Sometimes I don't feel like a pastor either, though. Um, so it leaves us discouraged, like, wow, I just don't have it. So we don't really press in and think that prayer can offer more. But here, here is a set of questions for us. Is it possible that all are equally gifted in prayer? That there's no ranking system on God's given some people a better measure of prayer. Is it possible that we can all equally engage in the same experience of prayer? Is it, uh, can prayer ever become something that you actually want to do? that you actually look forward to a break to pray? Is it possible for that? And if all of these are possible, then where do we go from here? We need a guide to lead us out of our misery, our one-sided, disappointing, tedious prayer life. That's what Jesus offers us here in Matthew chapter 6. So, um... Before we read the text, I do want to read it in a second, but um, I want to set, so that we can appreciate what we're about to read in here, I want to set the stage for you. And that is that we, in verse 5, are coming to the center of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, if you want to refresh the whole structure of the sermon, go back to our very first message in Matthew 5 and get a refresher. But it's a very specifically structured sermon. And we come to the pinnacle, the top of the pyramid, at the exact middle of the sermon. Um, Chase actually started that center last week with when you give. Um, now we come to when you pray. And the next section of the Sermon on the Mount is when you fast. These three practices form the center of the sermon, which means prayer being the center of these three is the center of the center. In fact, Jonathan Pennington's excellent commentary says that when we come to this section, specifically the Lord's Prayer, we come to the center of the center of the center of the sermon. And if you know anything, and then you're about to know something, about Jewish literary uh, devices, bless you, um, it's that they pose the most important information in the center of what they write. So Jesus is coming to, in other words, the most important part of his sermon. Hence, it's the center of the center of the center. So, Jesus sees prayer as the most important activity we can engage in as humans. He also understands that it's therefore the most challenging activity as humans. So, he, in these verses, is going to bring us into the Prayer 101 course. Prayer 101. If we don't master what he teaches us here, prayer will always be tedious, frustrating, and one-sided. So let's look at what he has to tell us. Um, 
before, again, some more background before we get to it. Um, remember that the sermon started with the Beatitudes. This was Jesus inviting the hearers, the crowds, into what he's offering. I'm inviting you into the Edenic life that humanity lost in sin. I want to bring you back. So he uses the word blessed are these people. These people are blessed not because they're being rewarded for being good. They're blessed because these qualities or these virtues which he describes, like poverty of spirit and mourning for your sin and being meek and hungering after righteousness and so forth. These are what an Edenic life looks like. This is the flourishing human. This is the good life. So he invites us into what God has come to remake us as. And so that's the invitation. He whets our appetite, gets us going, wow, we want to enter into this. Then in Matthew 5 verse 17, he launches his thesis and says, look, the old law was fine and all, but we are now building it up. We're growing it up because that law served to corral your flesh from sinning. But the new law brings the spirit within us so that the power of God resides in us, not just to control our flesh from, our flesh from sinning, but to let our very nature itself grow the fruits of God's nature. His virtues are given to us and we can grow in them. So Jesus asks us to have a righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees. That's not do more good works. That is let more of the righteous God live in and through you. And so then he gives us all these examples of what that looks like, concluding in 5 verse 48 with, you shall therefore be perfect. As your heavenly father in heaven is perfect. He is perfecting and will perfect forever us. You will never reach perfection. It's an impossible aim because God is perfect, but he's setting us on a trajectory that is going higher and C.S. Lewis says further up and further in. We have an infinite God to grow into and share his nature with. That's what he's bringing us to. You might remember that the, the, the concept that we start with in this life is wholeness. That I am inside and outside one in the same person. I am not a shirt that's white that we're going to turn red by painting red on it. That shirt is still white. It just looks red. The threads and fibers of that shirt didn't change. But instead, if you take that white shirt and plunge it into red dye, now the actual fibers and threads of the shirt become red. The nature of the shirt has changed. And that's what Jesus is calling us into. We are plunged in his dye, if you will. We have been changed in our nature. That's the greater righteousness. That's the being perfect as our father in heaven is perfect. So now he closes that his thesis argument is closed. And now the question is what? How in the world do I meager fallible, weak human being who sins every hour, how do I grow into this life that Christ is calling me into? I feel that I have so far to go. And Jesus is like, yeah, we do. So I'm going to give you something to do so that you spend your energy on these things and not on sin. So he gives us what I call three tools, because these are tools that cultivate the Edenic thriving life within the Christian. We use these tools and they will till the soils of our hearts that we can grow fruit. They will make us fertile. But at the same time, these tools will help be away certain sins, which seem to take special root in our heart. And you heard Chase mention them last week. Greed. That is done away with the tool of giving. 
You learn to give, you're not going to be eager to gain everybody else's stuff anymore. You're going to be doing the opposite. Vain glory. The desire to have glory from people is cultivated. That weed is pulled by the tool of prayer. Prayer seeks the Father's glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. The rest of the prayer is essentially detailing how we hallow his name. More on that, though, next time. Um, The third weed that takes root, gluttony. And gluttony is not always about food. It's also about indulging the senses and pampering the self. But fasting is the tool we're given to uproot that weed of gluttony. So these are the three tools. Chase did a wonderful job last week with giving. I really encourage you, if you missed it, to go listen to that. He also posted his notes for us. So he's very nice to give us his copyrighted information. <laughs> um, you can, no, okay. Um, yeah, it's all there for you. Tonight, we're going to get into the second tool, prayer. And we're going to spend more than one week. I don't know how many weeks. I th- at least two. Um, because it's that big. So with all of that prep, all of that lead up, let's finally look at prayer 101, what Jesus says. So Matthew 6, verse 5. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, in other words, places where they can be seen, that they may be seen by others. Notice their motive. Jesus does not condemn ever being seen in prayer. Obviously, you were all seen it. Some of you were seen in prayer tonight. I can't say everyone's praying. I don't know. We were all seen. The motive is why. Hypocrites pray to be seen. Whose glory do they want? The glory of people. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. Wow, Tyler thought well of me. That's really lame, but that's my reward. No offense to Tyler. It's just, there's bigger things to be offered here. Um, verse 6. But when you pray, this is the only of the two tools, by the way, that he doubles that up, when you. So this is an emphasis. This is an emphatic, this tool must be used. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice that contrast? He sees you when you pray this way. What did the hypocrites want? They wanted to be seen. You want to be really seen? This is how you pray. Verse 7. And when you pray, a third time, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. Or the New King James, I like how it says, as the heathen do. And I think that's important because it's referring to the way pagans prayed. Um, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. So a warning against being like the hypocrite and a warning against being like the heathen. Do not be like them. For they think they will be heard for their many words. Oh, I, okay, sorry, yeah, I read that. So, verse 8, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, or it may also read, from the evil one. Now he provides a commentary on a very challenging part of the prayer. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And thus concludes the center of the center of the center of the Sermon on the Mount. So each of these three tools Jesus intends us to use, so he gives us instructions on how to use them. Each one begins with when you. So last week we saw Chase read in verse 2, when you give. This week, when you pray, emphasized two more times. And next section, maybe not next time, next section, when you fast. So there's an invitation to take the tool up. These are not just to be left in the shed for somebody else to do. These are not your pastor's tools. These are your tools. The Christian is meant to have their hands calloused with the use of these tools. Then he goes on to give a warning about why we use these tools. Use them the right way. For example, if I give Atticus a shovel... I have a certain intention, you know, someday. I have an intention of him shoveling our driveway for us <laughs> from snow, right? That's, that's the motive of here's this tool. But if he uses it to start swinging it at, at Evelyn's head, <laughs> Papa's going to step in, yeah? There is a certain motive for these tools. Now, Jesus is going to, in all three, he says, don't use the tool the way hypocrites use the tool. Use the tool rather like this. In, in the one on prayer, Jesus actually gives us two examples. You see, the one on prayer is heightened and expanded because it's the most important. So don't pray like the hypocrite. Don't pray like the Gentile. What does it mean to pray like a hypocrite? Now, the way we usually talk about hypocrites today is we think of a hypocrite who says one thing but does the opposite. A politician says, I will make health care free for everyone, and then they don't. And like, hey, he's a hypocrite. And then that's the way the world talks about the church. They say that they sin less, but they sin all the time. They're hypocrites. That's not how Jesus uses the word hypocrite. So it's not helpful here that the world has kind of twisted its meaning. You have to scrub that from your mind and understand what Jesus means in the context of his sermon. He has told us that he is calling us to be people of integrity, which doesn't mean I tell the truth all the time. It means that we are integrated. All parts of our life are one. We are teleos, remember, perfect. We are whole. So that means that my inside corresponds to my outside, so the hypocrite prays to be seen by others, but inside he has no care whether or not the father sees him. That's not his point in praying. His praying is to be seen by others. He's living, his life is split into two. He's disintegrated. He's like this over here, but like this over here. So it's not just, I say I do this, but I don't. It's, it's much more profound and worse than that. It's that you are a split personality of sorts. That's the hypocrisy he warns us against. So in, in, in relation to prayer, it's pray to be seen by your father and have no regard for anyone else seeing you. The hypocrite cares that people sees him. So he's split. 
Um, so he warns us about our motive. Uh, and then third in each one. So he tells us when, take up the tool, watch your motive, don't be like the hypocrite. And then third, he promises a reward. So those who give, those who pray, those who fast are promised a reward. You're thinking, all right, payday is here. I'm going to pray when I get home and God will see extra credit. I prayed at church and I prayed after church, which I never do. I also never pray at night. So he's going to be super pleased and I'm going to have a great week. Um, okay, sure. If you subscribe to the religious system of doing things that uh, God's like a vending machine, you get out of it what you put into it. <laughs> it's not what he's saying. The reward is not add-ons for being a good little chap. The reward is God himself. When I give, I am meeting God and giving to God in the giving. That's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. As you've done to the least of these, my brethren, you've done unto me. When I pray, the reward is that I am seeing God. I'm in his presence. And we'll talk about fasting next, some other time. But this is the reward. It's God himself. Now, usually when you say this, you're, you're, you're like, your nominal Christian uh, will go like, oh, that's so disappointing. Like, I thought Christianity offered me more. Well, no, like, it's not a prosperity gospel, one. And second, um, what, what? You thought there was something more than getting God? What, what else did you think you needed? Um, the problem, though, is that most of us don't see God the way Jesus tells us to see God. We imagine God is distant and the reason our prayers are one-sided and tedious and frustrating is because he's very demanding and he's kind of waiting for us to get our act together before he blesses us. Uh-uh. If you've been with us from the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you know that that's far from what Jesus is saying. Um, no, rather, Jesus taught us to see God as our Father. And if he's our Father, then just being on his lap is reward enough as every child knows. So, Father becomes the foundation of how to pray. Don't miss that. Father is the foundation of how to pray. Jesus uses the word six times in the text we just read. Think of how many times the Bible as a whole refers to God as Father. Not many times. Outside of the Sermon on the Mount, I don't even know if there's six times. And yet he says six times in the verses we read. Look at it in verse, oh well, goodness, I didn't underline them. I should have. That would have been helpful. Uh, definitely in verse six, and your father who sees in secret. Um, in verse eight, do not be like them for your father knows the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. For if you forgive others the trespasses, your Father, verse 14. Um, if you do not forgive others, your Father, in verse 15. And I think there was one more, but I had missed it. So, one. yeah, the, verse 6 actually had it twice. So there you go. Oh, verse 1, yes, but we're looking at verse 5 through 15. Yeah, if you go into verse 1, you got a couple more and so forth. But yeah, six of them in this section on prayer. Six times. There's an abundant, there's an overload of Father. God is your Father. So, um, what we need, we're not to think of when we come to prayer of earthly fathers. Now, everyone always objects to calling God father. Like, oh, but so many people have such bad fathers. This is a damaging image and they, they won't get past their trauma. Uh, no, 
because the Holy Spirit is granted to us to teach us what a father is. That's why Romans says, the spirit in us cries, Abba, Father. The spirit teaches us who our father is. We must come to God as father. Let's not pam- let's stop pampering ourselves with, but I had a bad father. You're just excusing yourselves from the whole benefit of having a real heavenly father. And so then we get to this point where people say, father's just a metaphor. We can call him mother and so forth. And I know what they're trying to say, but it's very ultimately misleading. We don't pray to our mother in heaven, even though the Bible does use feminine motherly qualities to describe God. For example, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was not form was void. And the spirit of the Lord hovered over the darkness. Do you know what that word hovered is? It's the image of a mother hen brooding over her chicks. That's what the spirit was doing at the birth of creation. Brooding on the eggs. And they hatched all seven of them, if you will. Um, yes, God has feminine motherly traits. But Jesus told us to approach him as father. And there's specific reasons that we will get into in just a second. But here's what you need to consider. This is the father you're coming to. Your heavenly father made you. Your heavenly father wants you to grow and thrive and flourish like the tree of life itself. Your heavenly father wants a relationship with you. Your heavenly father stoops down, kneels, and spreads his arms wide to embrace you. This is your heavenly father. So Jesus tells us to go and pray to our father in secret in verse 6. Because what this means... Father being the foundation of prayer reinterprets prayer completely into relationship. Prayer is relationship with your father. Or back to that image of him stooping down and kneeling with his arms out to embrace the little children that we are. Prayer is when we put our arms back around him and the hug is complete. His arms, our arms intertwined as we share this space, this presence, this relationship. Prayer is how we return the embrace. All else about prayer is pure commentary. It's pure detail. This one image is what Jesus is after when it comes to prayer. Some much holier, more experienced Christians, both current and of old, have said similar words, and here's how they put it. Prayer is the journey of the soul to God, the purpose being to reach him and be united with him. Another, prayer is by its essence, communication and union with God and man. Another, the real point of prayer is not something, but someone. The real reward of prayer is not what we're asking God for. The real reward of prayer is communion with God. That was beautiful. Another, for what is better than to enjoy the love of God? Think the, the embrace, the hug. What is better than to enjoy the love of God in prayer and to be in communion with him? 
constant focus on this idea of you're not just talking to God and he hears you, but actually there is a descending and ascending that happens on his part and our part till we meet and there's no more distance. We are sharing life with one another. That's what communion is. It's the exchange of lives until there's a union. It's the arms intertwined. Our friend John Chrysostom, the, the earliest common, at least written record we have of sermons on Matthew's gospel, John says this, what, what happens when we call God Father is we acknowledge these truths. He says we acknowledge remission of sins, hallelujah, taking away of punishment, hallelujah, righteousness and sanctification, amen, redemption, inheritance, brotherhood with the only begotten, and the supply of the Spirit, all in this single title, Father. Wow. When you say Father, all of that is yours in his arms. For one cannot call, he finishes, God Father without having attained to all these blessings. That's prayer. The embrace. Your father's embrace. And embracing him back so that you're becoming one. Which means the practice of prayer is about becoming sons. Prayer makes us into sons of God. As we embrace our father and let him embrace us, we are learning how to be sons. And Yes, ladies, I know you're here too. I'm not saying in daughters because, frankly, the Bible says that men and women are being made into sons of God. This has nothing to do with gender and sex, please understand. You're not going to be like that when you're glorified. This has to do with sons inherited the father's stuff, his, 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 his estate. Jesus is the son of God. And we will therefore also be made like him. We will be made into sons of God. It has nothing to do with one gender or the other. It has to do with the role that these terms played back then. And so, hallelujah, you and I are being, we all, by the way, no, boys are not closer to being sons of God than girls are. That's just totally missing the point. We are all being made into sons of God like the son of God. So, so, so the process, so prayer is the process of beholding God and being held by God so that we learn what it means for him to be father and us to be son. That's the relationship that's happening. We, and, and we're in this embrace. We're beholding him and being held by him until we understand that we are sons, that we're partaking in his nature as a son partakes in the nature of his father, that we are loving what he loves and desiring what he desires. That's what prayer is. It's, it's that process by beholding him and being held by him. And so through prayer, we become, by his grace, what he is by nature. That's what Athanasius said. We become, by grace, what Christ is by nature. He's the son of God by nature. He doesn't have to do anything to be the son of God. He is uh, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made eternally, begotten of the Father, as the Nicene Creed says. That's him. But we aren't that. We've fallen from that. But by grace, we become this. 
And this is why he gives us these tools. These tools till the soil where grace, the seeds of grace have been planted so that these can now thrive and grow. Jonathan Edwards called spiritual practices and disciplines means of grace, which means these aren't how you acquire grace. You have acquired grace. It's how you enter into the grace. It's not about earning. It's about entering. And so we, by grace, become what Christ is by nature. That's what prayer is doing. So as we see, the word Father as the foundation of prayer tells us that prayer is not about what. What is a performance before God? What do I pray? What do I do? Prayer is rather about who. It's about participation with God. That's what Father teaches us. This, what Jesus is teaching, this is why we were saved. We were not saved so that God could turn bad people into good people. We were saved so that the sons of Adam could be turned into sons of God. Only the son of God coming in human flesh could make that possible. You could turn bad people and good people by teaching them psychology and good manners and giving them a golden spoon to eat from. Like, I can turn anyone into a proper English gentleman, if you will. Nothing about the English being better than us at all. Um, but just think about pinkies and, you know, you can turn and teach them how to properly sip tea. Um, that's, but to make the son of Adam son of God? Well, that, that's only by the son of God becoming a son of man and merging the natures together. This is why Jesus saved us. To put it in the words of the Bible, John 1, verse 13, 12 and 13, John 1, verse 12, to all who received Christ, he gave the power and the right to become sons of God. To those who believed in his name, to those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. This is beyond your physical makeup, your nature, this invisible internal part of us actually becomes partners in God's nature by grace. So with this beautiful vision that Jesus gives us, that the whole foundation of prayer is centered on the concept of father, I want to encourage us this week and for the rest of our lives, start this week, to pray our Father. Now, footnote, I didn't want to throw this in, but it has to be thrown in unless we get too exclusive here. Jesus is not telling us we can only pray to the Father. Nowhere in this is that is that his point. Um... The church has always prayed, Christians have always prayed to Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And all three being one, anytime we are in prayer, you're actually addressing the Trinity. And we really try to make that clear in our church by starting our service with, blesses the kingdom of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're not here because Jesus Christ is a superstar. We're not here because... The Holy Spirit's the one who makes everything fun. We're not here because the Father's the chief. I mean, we're here because all three are God. And all three have 
major contributions to our salvation. I'm not going to get into the whole Trinity right now, but um, <laughs> take wait, you guys would all be nodding off after a while. Um, but it is to say, it is okay to pray like we do to, O Heavenly King, the Comforter, the Spirit of Truth. We pray the Holy Spirit. We pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. We pray to the Trinity. Jesus' point, though, is to show us that when we enter prayer, we're entering relationship. Starting with Father, we enter into relationship. So pray our Father. I don't just mean throw that in there somewhere in your prayer and it'll magically transform everything. You're totally going to miss the point. It's not what, right? It's not about a formula. It's that we, and I'm going to maybe get some pushback, but uh, I cannot get my mind around this any other way. It's, actually, I'm getting on myself. But okay, yeah, it's, it's that we actually pray the words he taught us, our Father. This is a foundational prayer that teaches us to relate to God in the proper way. Now, the reason for this is that he makes it very clear that God knows you. Your Father knows you the way a heavenly Father knows his creatures that he created. That's what he said in verse 8, 6 verse 8. Um, do not be like the heathen, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Isn't that true? How a good father, just an earthly father, a good earthly father knows what his children needs. How much more your heavenly father, who didn't just have to bear with you through all your crying in life, but actually made you, who formed us from the dust and breathed life into us. He knows what we need because he made every part of us. So we pray, Father, because he knows us. This is one major elimination of the barrier of sin. To just know right off the bat, he knows me and he knows my needs. There's no burden on me to make it all said. I don't have to say anything that doesn't enhance my relationship with him in this moment. Because he knows what I need. It's not like I said it and now he magically, oh, now I'll do something about it. Please understand, prayer is not your submission of a work order to God. (laughs) Can you imagine? Hey, Jesus. It's been a while. Got a few work order requests. Money's drying up. Wife is... uh... I'm not talking about my life, okay? (laughs) I'm generalizing people here. But I hear when I'm sitting in coffee shops. <laughs> Megan tweeted, you know what? You know what? Um, I have enemies. Fix them, Lord. Uh, like, those are work orders, and those are fine, like, right? We do have petitions to offer, but those come in a very different context than here are the work orders. Where was I going with this? Uh, prayer is Father. It's the Father who knows us. He knows us. We don't have to inform Him. Hey, Lord, uh, did you hear about the six o'clock news today? Uh, <laughs> uh-huh. Yep, he did. <laughs> um, so he knows you, but also notice that he sees you. Know that when you pray to your father, he sees you. Look, a reminder in verse five, the hypocrites pray to be seen because they don't pray to a father who sees them. They pray because they have a need to be seen. Jesus is saying, you are already seen. 
So don't let your prayer be to get something like that. You are seen. So come before him in prayer knowing he sees it all. There's nothing to hide. There's nothing to clean up. There's nothing to impress him with. Be with him. And he knows us. He sees us. And and third, he hears us. He hears us. That was verse 7. Don't pray like the heathen who think that they will be heard for their many words. So we don't have to babble. Prayer is not about filling empty space with your babble. Ah, I ran out of things to say. Better say amen. I once heard it defined that you are truly in relationship with someone when silence is no longer awkward. You don't have to babble because he hears you. And that kind of ties into the whole he knows you. He knows the needs you have before you ask him. He's, he, he hears you even in the things you don't articulate well. He knows what the heart is trying to cry out if the words can't match it. Just open your arms and let him embrace you. That's what Jesus is asking us to do by praying our Father. And so then he tells us to actually pray like this in verse 9. Pray then like this, our Father, and he goes down with the prayer. Now, I believe um, that this prayer further defines Father as you go through it. We will look at this prayer next week. So I don't want to get into the prayer. Don't think I'm going to shortchange you. Like, he never even talked about the Lord's Prayer. Um, we're going to do that on its own. Um, but he gives us this prayer to teach us how to pray. Now, the great misfortune, in my opinion, but I hope I'm going to show you even scripturally, um, is that we have turned this prayer into a so-called model prayer. Actually, if you have a New King James Bible in front of you right now, what does the title right above verse 5 say? The model prayer. Please know that that's not scripture. Those are the editors trying to help you find things in the Bible. But that's also a bias. They have told you to think of it as a model prayer, even though Jesus never says that. Now, can you use this as a model prayer? Yes. But you have to see it first as something more. So here's, here's, here's how it goes. The ESV, the one I'm reading from, says verse 9 says, Pray then like this. Okay, so what does he mean? Pray like this, like these words, or pray something like this? It's vague, right? It doesn't really lead you one way or the other. The New King James says, pray in this manner. Again, very vague. It's almost like a saying, here's a model, as, especially as the title leads you to read that as. So pray something like, in your own words, or just let it influence you. Um, the NASB, shout out to Chase, um, prays, says, pray in this way. A lot more specific, in my opinion, that it leads you more to actually pray these words than just pray something like these words. Um, I, I may be reading that into it, though. So what I did is I went to the Greek. <laughs> what does it actually say? And so what it says is hautos. It's spelled out O-S in the English lettering, out O-S. So you think it's hautos, but it's actually a sound to it. So it's like hautos. Um, and it is translated as thus or so. 
okay, not super helpful so far. So here's what I else, what, here's what I also did, and this is what you should do. Don't just look up Greek words, because they just tell you definitions. Definitions don't give you interpretations. What you do is you then look at how the rest of the Bible uses the same word, and it gives you a broad overview of how do they use, what does it mean? So I looked at how haltos is used throughout the Bible. It was too much to actually look at everything, but I decided to look at some very important moments in the Bible, and it was shocking what it revealed. So, along with here, pray haltos. Haltos shows up in the Septuagint. Remember, that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is super helpful because you can link how the Old Testament uses New Testament words, and it's also really important because Jesus and the apostles read from the Greek Old Testament, not the Hebrew one. So um, you look at the Greek Genesis chapter 1, Hautas is all over Genesis chapter 1. Do you know how it's used? It's used as a summary statement for each day of creation. God did this and it was Hautas. Huh. So wait, think about this for a second. Is it saying that God made everything and it was sort of like this? Everything sort of did what he told it to? No. He said, let there be this, and there was that. It was so. It is solid reality. Uh, Moses, not Moses, uh, Noah. Anyone like me, you get Moses and Noah accidentally flip-flopped in here. Yeah, I do that all the time. Noah, um, when he was told to build the ark in Genesis 6, he was told to make it hotos. Make it in this way. Was God saying, I mean, if you get the rough estimate or, or, or let my dictation be inspiration for your creativity, that you're, your boat's not going to float, dude. I told you to make it, nor are you going to fill those animals. I told you to make it this way. And we read he made it that way. Wasn't close. He actually did what God said. Same thing with Moses in the tabernacle. Hautas is used all over Exodus as Moses builds the tabernacle. It talks about, so he made the cups and these things and all the utensils and, and the curtains. And it, all, it uses Hautas throughout that. Did Moses just use God's words as inspiration for do it my way? He made it exactly, the Bible's super clear, exactly as God told him to because God gave him the pattern of heaven's tabernacle to be on earth. So, yeah, Moses was super careful to get every little part of it just so. Um, getting an idea of how to us, right? Now, Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, to see how Matthew used it prior to this prayer. Uh, Matthew 1, verse 18, the birth of Jesus happened hautos, in this way. So, when he says it happened in this way, and he talks about the virgin conception and what Joseph did, is he saying... It happened something like this. Like maybe it was a virgin, maybe it was a young maid. We don't really know. And maybe Mo, maybe Joseph did actually was married to her before. No, these weren't hypotheticals. This isn't a model. Jesus came through some sort of meta narrative model, some typology like this. No, he actually came from a virgin. Like Matthew is very specific. So all that to say, when we come to Matthew nine and he says, "Pray then, hautos." I'm left to think he means pray these words. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And of course, there's trans, you know, translations are fine. Like you're going to have different words in certain places, but we are meant to follow a given prayer. All this to say, the prayer is not a model. It's foundational. If I can't learn to pray this prayer, how can I then learn to pray any prayer? If this is the one Jesus taught and I can't pray that, 
Good luck praying anything else. If I can't pray with Jesus's words, what makes you think that you're going to pray really well with your words? This is why I say it's foundational. We must start with what he gives us because it teaches us to see God as Father. The prayer is not so much a magical formula, I pray these words and now God will suddenly do what I want him to do. You're missing the point of Father again. The point of the prayer is that this is foundational because as I pray these words daily, I begin to see life through the lens of God as Father. The prayer is a worldview as much as anything else. It teaches me how to live and see. I, therefore, don't want to botch these words and stylize it my way. I can do that after, though, I actually pray hautos, these words. So we pray these words. Pray our Father. Go and do this. It's not something Catholics did and drilled into young people. They, you recite the Lord's Prayer. I'm sorry, that's not what happened Christians were praying these actual words three times a day in the living memory of the apostles. John was still alive when Christians wrote down that they pray the Lord's Prayer three times a day. Those actual words. How do we know this? There's a document called the Didache, and just super quick, you can tune me out if you don't care about this. The Didache written around 80, 90 AD. This is the living memory and lifespan of John, the apostle, uh, the Syrian church wrote down a manual for how to train new Christians. And they said, you pray the Lord's prayer three times a day. And they write down the actual prayer there. This is, so either they made this up within the living memory of the apostles who could have easily said, no, you shouldn't do that. Or they are saying what the apostles taught them to do. They were there when Jesus said, pray hautos. So it seems to me that Jesus wants us to pray these words. Um, and so, um, Here's where we're going to end. If you do, praying these words will free you from three things. Maybe more. It'll free you from worrying that you said the wrong things. Because you used the foundational prayer and you said what all prayer is. This prayer is the essence of prayer. You said everything in this prayer. It'll free you from worrying that you said the wrong things. It'll also free you from fretting that you forgot to say the right things. Because this prayer includes all the right things. Honestly, you pray this prayer and mean every word. You've prayed for everything in the world. And third, this prayer frees you from trying to be original in your words for fear that you will be inauthentic. I can't pray someone else's words. It's not me. Oh, that's the biggest bag of rubbish that our modern world has given to the church ever. Like, you are so, so Americanized and secularized if that's the way you view things. You can be authentic and use Jesus' words because Jesus is making you more your authentic self through his words. <laughs> uh, authenticity has nothing to do with my creativity of words. Authenticity has to do with the posture of my heart. I don't have to be a composer of new prayers to be authentic. I just have to have a posture of the heart that means what I'm praying no matter where the words come. Well, not no matter where. The book of Satan wouldn't be a good place to start. But I think you understand what I'm trying to say. So uh, it frees us. So brothers and sisters, embrace God through this prayer as God embraces you. You can go more than that, but this is where we start. This is the foundation. We pray to a father. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and to ages of ages. Amen.